In the deep dark, the Aslan are moving, but there is a darker power. There is something behind the claw. Welcome to episode 27 of the Behind the Claw podcast, a show for fans of the classic traveller RPG. I'm Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Let's start the show by taking a look in the email vault. Sylvain has got back in touch, as I misunderstood his question about science last time, and he has raised an interesting point. He says that much fiction is focused around a scientific principle or discovery. I guess an example might be the time dilation as we saw it in the movie Interstellar. I haven't actually used that kind of scientific twist in my games, but I have in a campaign used advanced Aslan robotics and psionic control of those robots, which formed a central theme for the party as the Aslan invasion progressed. The details of it were not too technical, but the fact that it worked gave a great MacGuffin that the players could latch onto and enjoyed playing with. And Lance has got in touch with a shocking story. He'd been playing in a regular Pathfinder game and following some cancellations, dusted off his little black books and proceeded to lead them on an adventure across a subsector. It went down very well and has formed an alternative for his group. Now why do I find this shocking? Simply because Pathfinder is from Crunchville, Tennessee, and its players would have had a real culture shock slipping into the simple character generation process, and then to have had them enjoy themselves. Through this, a new, different, lighter game? I mean, wow. Nice work spreading the good news, anyway. Lance, Lance. I hereby award you the garter of the Imperial Proponent. Now, on to the first segment. I have no idea. So, computer, what can you tell me about this place? This is the My Galaxy segment, where I tell you about a planet from my Foranus subsector. A map and planetary UPPs are available on the podcast's website at behindtheclaw.blogspot.co.uk. Foranus is the subsector capital. It is the administrative, technological and financial hub of the entire region of space. Although it sports a standard atmosphere and a surface with a good number of fresh water seas, these have unfortunately been tainted by the planet's overindulged industrial past. The fresh water should not be drunk without stringent cleaning and the atmosphere requires a filter mask. As befits a subsector capital, it is a crowded planet with well over a billion inhabitants. It's a relatively small world, squeezed further by the expansive seas, and so that the majority of the population are found in massive high-rise cities that dot the globe. The current leadership of Foranus is in the hands of the royal family from whom the planet and subsector takes its name. They're generally popular with the inhabitants, although there are a number of dissenting political movements, notably the anarchists and the democrats, both of whom claim the royal family has no right to rule. These groups number many thousands, but do not yet form any kind of political threat to the position of the royals. The royal family rules via an extensive and rather insidious administration 
that tightly controls much of the population's life from birth to death. Almost every aspect of life is controlled by licenses issued by the administration. Failure to have a license for any particular activity doesn't tend to end up in prison time or even fines, but rather future restrictions and delays and double checks when issuing future licenses. King Anatus has ruled the world for seven decades, and there is much speculation about his resigning the kingship to hand the reins onto his firstborn son, a man himself in his sixties. This has caused some concern, as the eldest son is also an admiral in the Imperial Subsector Space Forces, a role he enjoys greatly and says he would be unwilling to give up. The king's second son, who's in line, has also publicly stated that he does not want the kingship either, and it would impact on his charity works. The king's only daughter, Shialia, is next in line, but there is much public concern about her behaviour. She's considered a wild child amongst an overwhelmingly conservative culture, and the administration fears there may be some kind of revolt should she become queen. Visitors to Ferenus should carefully plan their visit if they intend to leave the starport. A trip to the Visitor Bureau at the starport will allow you to pick up all the requisite permits and licences. Failure to do so might end your day trip with a night in detention while they sort out the mess. No, no, no way. The way I heard it is that he was shipping arms, guns, you know, taking them straight in, under the navvy's nose. It's time for another story seed. The world of Chaka is undergoing political turmoil. A low-intensity rebellion is taking place as various terrorist freedom fighters carry out their long struggle to win freedom from the overbearing government. In this environment, good pay is hard to come by, and when a local DJ offers the party some good cash to act as lookouts for his pirate radio station, it looks like a dream come true. DJ Mexana is a bit of a local hero. He has been illegally broadcasting dance music without a licence every Friday night for the last decade. The local police have been trying to find and to shut him down for all that time. But he's been rather clever. He has a van that he broadcasts from, and a series of relay broadcast aerials set up around the city. By being on the move in his van and switching between the remote aerials, he's been able to give the authorities the slip but he needs a series of street-corner lookouts watching for the police in a perimeter around the blocks through which he drives his van, and that's what the PCs get hired to do. Maxana gives the PCs phones and allocates them a street-corner to stand on. They're given instructions to call if any police vehicles go by so he can divert out of their way. The problem for the PCs is that Maxana is more than a simple radio DJ. He's actually a part of the underground and his dance broadcasts are actually carrying coded messages to the terrorists slash freedom fighters. As the PCs spend their first day on this new job, the administration decide they finally need to take down the DJ and his network. Cops and militia roll into the area. The PCs are likely to be picked up but the DJ escape. During questioning, the PCs have the chance to play double agent and operate in a way to bring down the DJ. If they can get him to go to a particular warehouse on a particular day, they will be let go. But if they fail, they'll be arrested and imprisoned for life. 
There are a number of ways that this can go, and some fun ways for the referee to twist the knife. Perhaps Mexana has discovered that the PCs had been caught, and now he's very suspicious of them. Perhaps he knows everything, and wants to use them to ambush the ambushers. Or is Maxana himself a dupe, being used as a cutout by the underground forces? If the PCs get arrested, will a brave and resilient Maxana break them out, and join up with them, and join them to the underground? No, sir, you may not dock here. What the hell? I just made three jumps to get here. Without Permit 7C, you may not dock. Now move out to the holding line at 6,000 kilometres. This is the Rules Talk section, where I take a look at some aspect of the classic Traveller rules or canon. Today I've just skimmed through books 1 through 8, looking for details relating to Starship Fuel, so some of this might be new to you as it has been to me. Basically, Starship Fuel is hydrogen which can be brought in two basic states, either refined or unrefined. Refined fuel is much more expensive and runs around 500 credits per tonne. A ship's captain is a fool who uses unrefined fuel. It risks breaking the engines mid-jump, or causing a misjump that might throw the ship far out into the void beyond any chance of rescue. Ships can be built with refineries on board that can refine fuel before it's used, and thus avoid the huge extra cost of buying it already refined. I note that ships with aerodynamic hulls are also assumed to have fuel scoops that allow them to skim unrefined fuel from the atmosphere of gas giants. However, the rules don't say that they are assumed to have refineries too. So I guess the idea is that a captain would only use those scoops if absolutely necessary, or he'd fit a refinery to make the best use of them. If you were so bold as to risk raw, unrefined fuel, you're going to have to spend a week in dock with the engineers in order to flush the unrefined fuel out of the machinery. Docking fees and engineering assistance to do this is going to be pretty expensive. I also note that fuel is used to run power plants, the main jump drive and, of course, the manoeuvre drive on board ship, although I have to admit in my games I ignore everything but main jump drive usage. I found it interesting that the combat rules suggest a hit on fuel loses around 20 tonnes of fuel. So this hints that the fuel is stored generally in 20-tonne compartments or bladders. So if you're using fuel bladders in the cargo bay, then you should assume they come in 20-tonne denominations. Fuel can also be placed in drop tanks attached to the outside of the ship, but carrying these increases the mass of your ship and will have a corresponding reduction in jump capability. Next, the rules also state that a ship can land in water and open the cocks to flood the fuel tanks with water, which can be refined into fuel, or used as unrefined. The rules don't state the following, but some basic science advises this thought. Water is H2O, meaning one hydrogen and two oxygen so 100 tonnes of water would only give you 33 tonnes of fuel, if it's refined. I'd also suggest that if you use the water as fuel, you'll only get one third of the jump capability too. I couldn't find anything definitive about fuel refining. Is that something you have to wait for, or can it be done as you go while you're in jump? If the fuel tankage is split into 20 tonne sections, 
I guess you could wind up the jump engines as soon as you've got one of those cells of fuel refined. Provided, of course, you can refine the next 20 tonnes in the time it takes you to use up that first 20 tonnes. In the past, I've issued a referee fiat, saying that it takes a week to process a jump's worth of fuel. But since I'm now aware of these 20 tonne segments, I may have to change that going forwards. Anyway, that's all I found out about fuel. If you have any more information or snippets or theories relating to fuel, please do write in. Did you hear that? What the hell do you think it is? Is it dangerous? This is the Creature Catalogue, where I tell you about one of the alien creatures that can be found in and around the Imperium. The Curite lives on the populated world of Havenstein, which is a planet with an unbreathable and dense atmosphere. This high pressure allows this large flyer to support its bulk in flight, which wouldn't be possible in a standard atmosphere. A full-grown curite can weigh as much as 40 pounds and have a wingspan of 30 feet. It has a long body that tapers to its prehensile tail, which is armed with a thrusting bony point. Its head is supported by a long neck that allows its head to reach around almost to the base of its tail. It has two large wings of thin skin that stretch over a light, bony supporting framework, and two smaller wings further back along its body that are used for manoeuvring in flight. The air of Havenstein also support a large floating creature called the Tabalex, and the Curite alight upon the back of the Tabalex to feed. The Tabalex has a series of deep recesses along the horizon of its body, which harbour a vigorous collection of plant life on which the Curite feeds. When first discovered, it was thought that there was a direct symbiotic relationship between the two animals, as observation appeared to show the Curite lived inside the other. The Curite is fairly slow-moving, but rarely moves alone, often flying in flocks numbering up to a hundred. These have proved a serious hazard to flying craft. Collision with a flock has downed many an aircraft over time and has led to the culling of them in many areas. The Curite gives birth to live young in ground nests, and the rightlings, as they are known, rely on the parent birds for about two months before being able to fly. During this time, it's not unknown for the adults to fly upwards to 150 miles in search of the nearest tabalix on which to feed. By nesting in groups, the adults share protection of the nesting area and allow each other to leave in search of sustenance. The rightlings themselves have proved to be a tasty food source, although the flesh is thought distasteful once the animal reaches adulthood. Capturing the rightlings has become a rite of passage amongst the young men of Havenstein. No child is considered a man until they have raided a group of nests. This is a difficult and dangerous task, as the adult curite are very aggressive in protecting their young and present a very dangerous adversary. There have been a number of deaths attributed to curite attack, with the victim's death caused by serious puncture wounds from the curite tails. So I'm here. Why don't you tell me why you're cold? The spacer in the corner booth. Oh, don't stare at him. I see him. Who is he? It's the guy on the news vids. Which news vids? With thousands of channels. Crookwatch. Ah, 
This is the People of Interest segment, where I tell you about someone from the Imperium that has a bit of a reputation. Mabala Synthilla is a tyrant without real power, but yet he holds sway across a continent. Mabala is the younger brother of Kith Synthilla, and it's this relationship that gives the younger man his assumed power. His elder brother, Kith, is described by the government as an underworld criminal that runs a series of illegal rackets across the world. He's been accused of everything from simple racketeering, drugs running, and protection rackets, through to extortion against major corporates. One of the highest profile cases brought against him claimed that he'd been threatening various large communication companies with damage against their orbital satellite networks and the relay stations that transferred trade data out to the popular jump points. This case was eventually dropped after some of the witnesses disappeared. This led to some speculation that they'd been killed by Kith, a rumour that he later scotched by broadcasting video of the missing witnesses who had suddenly and without warning moved home to another nearby system, where they found themselves employed and well paid. It is without doubt that Kith is a very successful businessman, and that is the likelier product of the social situation of the Gugal system. The power of the government has been weakening over the last century as more and more of the powers that it used to enforce have been devolved on civilian and private entities. What the government called protection, Kith would describe as private policing. Indeed, this seems to be the accepted opinion of Kith's businesses across the board. His reputation and perceived extra-legal practices have allowed his younger brother, Marbala, to create his own unsavoury reputation. By all quietly whispered accounts, Marbala has an unsavoury and threatening countenance and an attitude to match. He's been arrested seven times, three of which where he was accused of murder. But in each case, he's walked shortly after arrest. These arrests actually seem to have emboldened Marbala and aggravated the violent side of his behaviour. His freedom is undoubtedly due to his brother's influence in some respect, but Marbala has a wide-thrown net of underground operatives of his own, who have been known to rough up or to disappear witnesses. It's not known publicly, at least, what Kith's opinion of Marbala's behaviour is. But considering that he keeps such a tight rein on his own men... It's not thought to be favourable. While both brothers have used intimidation, it seems that Marbala's brand is more thuggish, less subtle and more direct. People know to clear the street when Marbala's air car rolls along. Is the younger man rebelling against his brother? Or merely trying to outshine him? The answer is not known, but the word on the street is that Marbala is bad work and has protection that can't be ignored. Thanks for the trade, Tuchel. It was a pleasure doing business with you. So long, sucker. And so we've reached the end game. I'd like to tell you that I've collected the audio from the podcast relating to the Tosesso subsector and crafted it into an audiobook that you can download from audible.com. So if you fancy listening to an entire subsector, not sullied by the other segments from the show, Take a look at Audible. Search for Subsector, one word, and you'll find it. Once again, and as usual, if you have any thoughts, suggestions, questions, segment items, or stories, 
send them in to BehindTheClaw at Outlook.com. This podcast is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Its home on the web is at BehindTheClaw.blogspot.co.uk. Music by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I'm your host, Felbrick Napoleon Herriot. Thanks for listening. Prepare for jump.